Hello, and welcome back to Troy and the Trojan War. Today, we finally close out the Iliad. And that kind of, like, leads me to quite a bit of introspection and retrospection and all that fun stuff. Um, on the one hand, I do definitely want to talk about all the stuff going on in the last couple of sections of this text. Um, but a lot of it, really, we don't need to talk about all that much. Like, as fascinating as the games are, I'm really not sure there's any greater depth to be had than just kind of looking at them piecemeal and seeing, you know, who wins, who loses, so on and so forth. Um, besides some fairly important stuff about Odysseus and Ajax, um, which we'll get to. We do have a lot to talk about for Priam and what's going on with him in Troy first before he goes to see Achilles and then afterwards. Um, but before we get into that, I kind of want to just sort of step back and talk about what the deal is. Like, why did we just spend nine lectures, you know, five weeks of class reading the Iliad cover to cover? Um, and I've already kind of talked about it back in, you know, the doldrums lecture where I was kind of exploring, you know, why did I do the whole Iliad? Why not just, you know, do excerpts or, you know, as some professors have done, just summaries or something like that. Um, but here I want to kind of get at just what this text has done um, in the five weeks that we've been studying it and why it remains such an important part of the Western lexicon and, you know, the foundation of Western literature as we know it. Um, and I hope at this point at least some of that is really obvious. Um, like, I probably don't need to tell you why this book is, you know, emotional or, you know, why it seems important in, in some greater context. Um, but as much as this class is called Troy and the Trojan War, and as much as, like, there's a lot of ambiguity about what exactly that's supposed to entail, like what I'm supposed to teach here, what I'm supposed to do, um, at the end of the day, it does circulate more about this version of the Trojan War. Like, we're not even sure from a historical perspective whether or not the Trojan War actually happened, or what it looked like, or if any of the heroes that Homer talks about were actually present, or, you know, if there really is any attribution of truth to what Homer has presented to us. Um, but what I intend to show for the back half of the class, like, now that we're out of the Iliad and going into the Odyssey and, and starting to talk about the legacy, especially of the Iliad and of Homer generally, um, is that it kind of doesn't matter whether or not this was a historical event. Like, this poem was big enough to change the world in some really dramatic ways. Um, you know, never mind whether or not Achilles existed, whether or not, you know, there was in fact a Hector and a Priam, whether or not there's any reality to any of what Homer is talking about. What I want to stress is that it doesn't matter because people believe that it was. Um, literature in Homer's day is a very different kind of beast than it is today in our world. Like, you go to Barnes & Noble or your local bookstore or you're poking around on Amazon seeing what to read, assuming that you even read books. I kind of don't. I figure my, most of my students would prefer to do virtually anything else but read based on the fact that they usually do any number of things to get out of reading these books. Um, but when you encounter a book in a bookstore, 
you approach it as something to be consumed, something to be understood, something to be read and then done away with. Um, you know, the you look at the back cover and you say, does this look interesting to me? You know, does the plot sound good? Do the characters sound good? Um, like, there's a whole big question about why we read, why we consume media, why we watch television or movies or any number of things. And there's obviously a lot of potential reasons for that. Like, you know, you do it to escape. You life is boring or it sucks or there's a lot that you don't like about it um so you turn to watching you know your favorite movie for the umpteenth time whether it's the princess bride or star wars or marvel movie or whatever um we watch tv just to escape the doldrums of you know everyday life that sort of thing um but when you pick up a work of fiction especially when you watch a marvel movie or when you you know pick up some novel that's just hanging out on the shelves, whether it's fantasy or supposed literary fiction or whatever, you approach it with the idea that there's nothing real about it, that it is just to be enjoyed, just to be sort of read and moved on with. Um, the Iliad isn't that. Fiction as a concept really didn't exist in the ancient world. Um, like, people knew the difference between truth and falsity. They're very concerned with that. They're, they're you know, not... They're, it's not like nobody knows what a lie is in Homer's time. Um, but the idea that art, like a story that is told by a poet or by a bard or by a priest, for that matter, is a lie, that's not necessarily something they would have been terribly concerned about, I want to say. To kind of get at the crux of this, let me stress, Homer is writing what he believes is true. At least, that seems to be the case here. Like, if we look at the fact that, you know, Hesiod hanging out, you know, watching his sheep, starts all of his poetry by saying, you know, thank the muses for giving me this vision of what things are really like in you know, the creation of the world, that's an indication that Hesiod believes that he has had divine inspiration in some sense, or at least what we would call divine inspiration. Likewise, when Homer, you know, appeals to the muses, muse, tell me about Achilles' rage, muse, tell me, you know, how this particular event in the Iliad went down, muse, tell me exactly what's going on here. You know, part of this is, in fact, invention, it is divine inspiration in some sense, and it is assumed that that is going to lead to truth. The composition of a work of art is in fact a kind of divining for uh, Homer and for Hesiod and for most of the Greek writers who existed at this particular point in time. They didn't see this stuff happen, but they don't need to because they trust the gods to tell it to them correctly. And how do they get the information from the gods? Well, by writing it on the page, of course. That's how this works. Maybe there is some kind of vision. Maybe that vision is brought about by what mind-altering substances of some kind. Everybody knows that the Greeks were very into drugs of various kinds, and even the oracle at Delphi is supposedly very high on the vapors that they would take in at that particular location. This was not considered something to 
argue against the legitimacy of the story being told. On the one hand, whoever wrote the Iliad, whatever that means, um, was probably engaged in something like that, and as much as it has been adapted and changed by many bards, by many traditions down the line, as we'll talk about in the next few weeks, um, we should note that the end product, the Iliad as we have it, would have been regarded by the Greeks in both Homer's day and in Plato's day and beyond as true. Now, I should specify there's a different relationship here than what we would usually assume is the case when we talk about divine inspiration. Like, when I say the words divine inspiration, you're probably thinking Bible. And that's appropriate. Like, generally in our culture, we will look to the Western religious texts, the Bible, the Quran, as the major standard for understanding how divine inspiration supposedly works. And that's a really complicated discussion in itself that I don't want to get too deep into right now. But I want to stress that while the Greeks had a much faster and looser attitude towards divine inspiration than the Christians and uh, the Jews and the Muslims do, like the Christians and Jews and Muslims assume that, you know, their book is capital T true because it was given to them by God in some sense or another um, through any number of potential intermediaries or possibly directly in the case of the Quran or certain passages in the Old Testament. Um, by contrast, the Greeks would not have thought that it is capital T true. They recognize that the muses are going to give you a lowercase t truth, something that is true generally speaking, but is also probably subject to some bias, probably subject to some artifice, probably more streamlined than actually historically accurate, but really, who cares? Because all this happened hundreds of years ago, and it really doesn't matter, and a good story is better than a good history anyway, right? Like, this is not to say that the Greeks didn't consider the Iliad historically accurate, but rather to say that they considered it truer than historical accuracy. It got at something that the gods saw that humans didn't. I mean, consider how often we've seen the gods directly referred to in this text. How often, you know, chance things like... Uh, Paris's helmet strap snapping, or here in Book 23, something like Ajax being tricked up by Athena, is stuff that you really wouldn't be able to know if you were on the ground in the Trojan War as a normal mortal, you know, trying to explain the, the causes of the various things that you were witnessing. So what I'm saying is that the Iliad is a product of a fusion of capital T Divine Truth of the sort that we'd find in the Bible, but also cap or a kind of lowercase t truth that is the product of art. Art makes truth in this perspective, in this attitude, in a way that it isn't true for something like the Bible or the Quran or how Christians, Jews, and Muslims view those particular texts. More license is taken by Homer with whatever his divine inspiration is, or at least more license is assumed by the people who read Homer, if that makes sense. But the upshot of all this is that people think it's true. The Greeks would have considered this an authoritative text on the subject of the Trojan War, in addition to being a work of art, a work of literature. Um, and this line 
this blurriness between these concepts is actually something that's going to stick around for a long time. The entire ancient world is going to be pretty open-minded about the lines between art and truth. Like, the Greeks of, say, Plato's day, that golden age in Greece in the 4th and 5th centuries BCE, is just starting to draw the lines between what is myth and what is history, what is, you know, actually the case, what can be observed versus what has to be sort of assumed or postulated about the gods. You know, writers like Herodotus are starting to weed the, the fancy, the myth, out of truth, out of historical accounts. And by the Romans, especially in like the first century AD with guys like Livy and Tacitus and so on and so forth, there's a deliberate effort to remove the fancy, the myth, the supernatural stuff from the rest of the histories as they're told. Um, but even in the medieval world, there's still blurriness in those lines. Um, there's still some question, some uncertainty, and an, a certain amount of being okay with that uncertainty. A certain respect for art as being divine in its own right. Um, so when we talk about the Iliad as true, we have to recognize that it is true to the Greeks in their own time, in a certain sense, and remains true to us today in a similar sense. So on the one hand, we have to recognize, you know, part of the great importance of the Iliad, part of the reason why we go out of our way to read the whole thing in this class, why it you know, we have multiple classes here in the Humanities Department at Montclair um, devoted to the study of the Iliad and the Odyssey and Homer generally. Part of the reason why, you know, this book has been considered so important by so many people for so long, part of that is because it's had a real and concrete effect on the world. Because people took it seriously for hundreds of years, the world is a different place because Alexander the Great carried it along with him on his various conquests uh, throughout the ancient world, the Iliad has become this foundational text for a lot of the ancient world, from, you know, Greece to India and beyond. Um, at the same time, we also have to recognize that it's still alive. That, you know, people picking this book up and reading it for the first time still find value in it still see meaning in the way that the characters behave and in the truths that Homer proposes to say here. Like, as often as I've gotten excited about certain passages where I'm like, hey, this is a really big deal for the Greeks, you know, here's Aeneas and Achilles squaring off, and this is a reference to Aeneas escaping the, the fall of Troy, or here's the list of the ships, and while it's really boring to us, I should emphasize that it's really interesting to the Greeks. There's also a lot of stuff that I don't need to preface that with. Like, I don't need to tell you why Hector's death is tragic. You probably figured that one out on your own. You probably were moved by it on your own. Maybe I helped you realize exactly how painful, how poignant it was, but presumably if you sat there and read the text, it would still move you. Homer's characters are still believable. Even the ones that don't make sense, even the ones that don't abide by our scientific understanding of the world. The fact that Zeus can't possibly exist doesn't make him any less compelling as a character. Now, I should also stress that 
on the one hand, I want to like drive home the fact that this is an important book and you know capital I important in both of these senses. But I also kind of want to stress that this is not necessarily my jam. Like, don't get me wrong, I love this book. I have been teaching it at Montclair for a long time now, and I suspect that I have spent an strange and inordinate amount of time studying the Iliad and the Odyssey. But I also want to stress that, like, I'm not a scholar of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Like, I studied Greek, but I studied Greek to study philosophy. Like, you leave Montclair and go to any of the other schools where I teach, and I'm the philosophy professor, not the humanities professor. Um, this is odd to me, unusual to me. And as much as I'm sitting here recording what is probably my 10th or 11th lecture on the study of the Iliad itself, never mind the Odyssey, the fact that I've you know taught this in a classroom basically every semester for the last five years in some form or another, I'm as surprised as you are. Like, if you have questions about how this is, why we need to learn this, why it is this important, why, you know, besides the usual reasons of, hey, it's, you know, college and you're supposed to read boring books in college. Like, if you're asking those questions, I'm asking those questions too. I'm asking myself, why, why am I teaching this again? for the fifth year, you know, where is my life going that I find myself once again kind of tied to this book? Um, and on the one hand, I know why, and I've given you all the reasons why, and it's important, and there's historical significance, and it gives us an insight into the Greek attitude, and, you know, it's of great literary merit, and there are some beautiful passages and wonderful character development, and, you know, even as an aspiring artist, I look at this book and I'm frequently astonished by the way that Homer presents these details and developments and the way that Lombardo translates it into a contemporary and very real prose. All of that is really cool to me, or rather poetry, I should say. Um, all of that is really cool to me, and I don't mind teaching this text as often as I do. But at the same time, I do resent it a bit. Like, again, this is not my jam. This is not the thing that I expected to be studying year after year when I was doing my undergrad in philosophy and doing my master's at Boston College and beyond. As much as I love this book, I do love other books more, and I do find other books more personally significant to me, I guess. But the fact is, when you dwell on the book like this for as long as you do, it kind of doesn't matter. It changes you. You start to see the world from the perspective of Homer. You start to make exceptions for him. You start to explain whether to yourself or to the rest of the world or both why it is that you keep finding yourself here. You find meaning. You read it into the text if you can't even find it there. Um, and on the one hand, I want to caution you away from doing this. Like, do let Homer speak for himself. Don't, you know, try and write a new meaning for what's being said here. And I hope that I've avoided doing that in my own right. But I should also, su like, suggest, you know, we're going to be spending the rest of the semester basically in and around this book. Like, this is just the beginning of our study of the Iliad. I.e., reading the Iliad was just the beginning of our study of the Iliad. Like, 
now is where we sort of blow the doors open and start talking about the secondary literature and talk about the companion literature, talk about the different cultures looking at this book and coming up with different conclusions, talking about the legacy that has existed for, you know, the 3,000 years that this book has been around and has been read and has been found important by various people. We are just getting started, in short, and it took us five weeks to get here. Um, but what I want to sort of get at. The reason why I'm kind of like waving my hands in the air and trying to sort of wander my way around to a point um, is that whether or not you find this book compelling, whether or not you think this book is important, whether or not you think it's a waste of time, we are going to use it as an opportunity to do the work of analysis. And whether or not you give a shit about the Iliad, whether or not I give a shit about the Iliad, I do give a shit about that. I care very deeply about turning you, my students, whether in person or online or wherever, into people who can think. Um, which is not to say that you can't think, like I should probably clarify, David Foster Wallace has taught me better than this. Um, you can think. But the trick is, it's easy to think in certain patterns. Like, that's the way that brains work. You form these neural pathways, you forge these connections, and then they get stronger the more that you hammer them home. The more you follow those neural pathways, the more that your train of thought goes in the same direction, the more you will get entrenched in that kind of perspective. And while, on the one hand, that's perfectly natural and there's no way to avoid it, we all need to sort of, like, accept this about ourselves, we also need to resist that temptation a great deal. Um, that kind of getting stuck in a rut thinking is how you get radicals shooting up schools and churches and mosques and how you get, you know, conversations on Facebook that don't go anywhere because everyone is so stuck in their own perspective that you can't actually change your mind. I don't want you to become a Homeric Greek. That is not my intention here. I hope I have stressed frequently that Homer's perspective is reflects a culture that is very problematic, even if he seems to be more observant about its flaws than many of the people who are actually in it and who are writing later on in the process of this culture's development. But I do want you to see that this is an alternative. I want you to try and understand Homer. Not necessarily so because the Greeks are brilliant and you need to understand their perspective, but so you can understand other perspectives generally. So when somebody comes up to you and explains a wildly different attitude towards you know, American culture or towards a book that you love or towards a movie that you enjoy. And they give you this completely different attitude that you can adjust yourself to fit in that position. Like, I think that's kind of what college is supposed to be about generally. Like, don't get me wrong, if you're in a science program and you're only taking this out of, out of some need for a general edu education requirement, then maybe you're on a different track and maybe we need to, you know, adjust our expectations accordingly. Science is training. You are learning a specific thing. You are becoming more knowledgeable about X, and there is no question that you are becoming more or less knowledgeable. You are becoming more, you are becoming better at the thing, full stop. 
But here in the humanities, when we study philosophy or when we study great literature or when we study Greek culture or when we study history, there's a lot less certainty than that. There's a great deal of ambiguity to the conversation. And I suspect that I've talked about that a lot already at this point, because at this point you've already heard me deliver my discussion of research papers and you know how to write them, how to research for them, etc., etc. But the key thing that I want to communicate here is that we're going to keep talking about Homer and the Iliad even after we've stopped reading it, because there's a lot of questions left unanswered. A lot of questions that Homer can't answer. A lot of questions that come up because of quest things and cultures and people and historical events that have arrived after Homer existed that Homer's Iliad still somehow manages to speak to and be relevant to. Um, people are still, 3,000 years after the fact, trying to understand what Homer meant in certain passages. Sometimes because those passages are confusing. Sometimes because those passages have lost their context. Like, we don't know what an actual Greek sacrifice looked like, and we have questions about whether or not Homer represents it accurately here. Um, there's a lot to trying to figure out more than just the Iliad. And while this isn't my jam, and this isn't the thing that I went to college to study, and this wasn't the thing that I expected to find myself studying in 2022 or teaching in 2022, I do have a respect for the Iliad for many other books that, again, aren't my jam, insofar as I recognize that the study of them is bottomless. There is no answer, no solution, no co single correct interpretation of the Iliad. There are, however, many potential interpretations that are more or less valid than one another, and you can argue for those correct interpretations, not using scientific data, but instead by looking at the text, bringing up important passages, and arguing that this is the right way to fit all of this information together. Let's look at Homer, take the sum total of all that he said in the Iliad, and try and come to some conclusion about what he wanted to say, what he wanted to communicate to us, what values he wanted us to take away from the text, what meaning is here for us. And sometimes we're going to look at Homer and ask him questions like, what did you mean by this? What did you mean by that? And we're going to look at Homer's history, and we're going to look at Homer's culture, and we're going to say, maybe this was the answer based on what little we know of all of this time and place. And other times we're going to ignore Homer entirely. And we're going to say, what did the Greeks believe about this? Is this a healthy attitude towards women or towards sex or towards warfare? Um, we might very well reject the Iliad not because of what Homer was trying to communicate, but reject it just out of hand, because our culture has decided to reject some of its values or some of its attitudes. Many people have questioned the business of continuous, continuing to teach the Iliad, a book that is fundamentally about war, in an age where war is very much bad, passé, destructive in a way that even Homer could not have fathomed. On the one hand, I should recognize that, you know, 
Homer doesn't seem to be on board with war, generally. He seems to be opposed to it more often than not. He dwells much more on the destructive potential of all of these warriors than he does on the benefits that this war offers. And yet, he does so by telling us in great detail and with some relish about wounds and blood and gore and corpses and people just wrecking each other left and right. So we might say, okay, Homer, what do you actually think about war? Do you just enjoy telling these stories about violence while also using it as an excuse to say that war is bad? Because that seems a little disingenuous. You know, the same way that it might be a little disingenuous for you to really get into the shooting mechanics in a first-person shooter that is supposedly an anti-war screed, looking at you Hideo Kojima. Technically, it's a third-person shooter, I should qualify. Suffice it to say, we still have questions about the Iliad. It is still a living text. And part of the reason why it's a living text is because it is so damn compelling. You know, we do still find these characters real and vivid and reflected in the experiences that we have today. This is what makes great art in some sense. The fact that it is bottomless, that it does raise these questions and keeps us talking about it long after it's ended. You know, in the same way that a movie like Inception, with its ambiguous ending, keeps people talking about it many years after it's been a thing, even if you are annoyed by it. There's still a discussion to be had, and the greater the work, the greater that discussion will continue to go on for. Crappy works of art die quick. People lose interest in them quickly. They're solved and moved on or recognized to be just completely flawed or inaccurate and people just dispose of them. But works that continue to thrill the imagination, that continue to ask these questions, that continue to fire our conversations about cultures and about values and about morality and about philosophy, works like the Iliad in short, we still talk about them thousands of years to come. As much as Homer stresses fairly frequently in this text that Achilles, in getting his honor, will as a result be talked about for many thousands of years, we might go another step and say, well, yeah, people are still talking about Achilles thousands of years later, but even more people are talking about Homer. Achilles won immortality through his actions, so to speak. But Homer won immortality through his artifice. And while Achilles' actions are ultimately just relayed to us by this particular storyteller, we have Homer, whoever Homer was, just as Homer presented it. This text could effectively be immortal in a way that Achilles and his legacy just isn't, in short. And while once upon a time I would have said that it would be wrong, in fact I use the very example, it would be wrong to confuse Homer with Achilles, to take the poet for the hero, at the end of the day I think I've adjusted my position on that. I think the poet is the hero. I think the accomplishment of Homer outweighs the accomplishment of Achilles, if only because we can't actually point to the accomplishment of Achilles. We can't look at the great sweep of history and say that great warrior killed that other great warrior and the fates of empires changed, except by pointing to the poem and saying, see, it says so right here. 
At the end of the day, if the only way that Achilles has survived this long in the, our consciousness as a culture and as a world is through a poem, then I tend to think the poet gets first dibs on honor and glory here. Homer ends up being awesome in a way that even Achilles isn't. The accomplishment of Achilles disappears into the history. We can't even prove that it happened. But the accomplishment of Homer, that's still changing the world in some respect. Art is powerful that way. Don't let anyone tell you different. Uh, much as I, you know, will sit here and talk about this text for, for many, many months to come, um, much as I may very well be teaching this text in years to come, I should very much emphasize it is both frivolous to do this and of the utmost importance. It is, in fact, just reading a book and is done for entertainment and is done for some kind of personal edification. But in doing this, we join 3,000 years of people looking at the same book and finding meaning in it. The tradition here far surpasses just the reading of the Iliad in some respect. So this is kind of our jumping off point. This is where we turn from talking about the Iliad to the Iliad's legacy, to participating in that grand tradition of people reading this book and trying to make sense out of it. And we're going to see how people make sense out of it, both in the 20th century and the 21st century, as well as all of the centuries that came before. We will track people thinking this book is awesome for thousands of years. Um, but before we get to that, we do, in fact, need to talk about the actual matter here at the end of the book. Um, and I want to keep this fairly brief. Like, I don't want to get too bogged down in the text this time around, in part because I'm very eager to move on with our class and with my lecture schedule. Um, but also just because there's not that much to talk about. Especially book 23. Like, there, I've never taught book 23 in my mythology classes, even though it is, in fact, in the, the essential Iliad version that I do teach my students. Um, and I don't teach it for a number of reasons. It probably wasn't terribly exciting to read. Like, this is, you know, we're back in book two land where, you know, it's important to the to the people listening, but it isn't necessarily important to us from a, a narrative standpoint. Like, we saw the climax last time. Achilles killed Hector. The book can end now, right? Um, not really, but even some of the stuff that is here seems a little unnecessary. Like, the initial stuff in the Iliad 23 I do think is important. Um, Achilles comes home from his big, like, defeating of Hector. He still has Hector dragged behind his chariot. Like, he is still defiling the body as much as he can. Um, and he comes home, and you'll notice, and I find this to be, like, especially interesting. Um, you'll notice that there's this moment where, like, Achilles is getting ready to make the big funeral feast, and they're having this big discussion about, you know, what are they going to eat, and how are they going to eat it, and so on and so forth. And finally, like, the Greeks are like, hey, why don't you go wash off all the blood and guts and viscera that you've accumulated? 
And Achilles responds, By Zeus on high, there will not be any washing of my head until I have laid Patroclus on the fire and heaped his barrow and shorn my hair, for never will I grieve like this again while I am among the living. I find it striking here. On the one hand, I want to... I've kind of like been back and forth on the whole has Achilles changed, has his rage changed, because you know, again, books 17 to 19 or thereabouts, we see a pretty big transformation. It seems like Achilles has learned his lesson. He is completing his arc, but on the other hand, we read books 20 to 22, and it's like, wow, that guy is a monster. He is murdering people left and right. He is defiling their bodies. He is flaunting his power before the gods. He has offended the friggin' river. Like, that guy is still a giant asshole, in short. And then we see this passage where they're asking him, hey, why don't you, you know, wash off so you can come to dinner and we'll do the, the whole ceremony for Patroclus. And Achilles responds, no, I'm gonna do this all gross and stuff. And I can't help but think of back to book six, where Hector walks into, you know, the whole, into the city of Troy, into his, into his, like, his father's courtyard, and Hecuba approaches him and says, hey, do you want to drink a libation to Zeus? And his response is, no, that would defile the libation. I'm still covered in blood and guts. Achilles flaunts the defilement here. He still is covered in filth. And he seems to revel in this. And I suspect that this is connected to that overpowering rage that we've seen over and over again in this text. Like, Achilles is always going with his gut instinct, always following his passion, always just doing what he feels like doing. And it doesn't seem like he gives much of a crap about the gods and the natural order of things and respecting the way that things should be. Like, as much as I kind of pointed out that, you know, Achilles was shirking his responsibilities and that this is sort of some opposite form of hubris, this is really bad hubris. Like, never mind Hector and his sort of, like, screw-up there, putting on Achilles' armor and the gods being like, well, that did it, now he's dead. Like, Achilles is just repeatedly defiling bodies, defiling the earth. Like, we get this passage in Iliad 24 where... Like, Zeus is legitimately upset. Like, Apollo delivers this screed against Achilles. Line 37 or so in Book 24. How callous can you get, Apollo asks. Has Hector never burned for you thighs of bulls and goats? Of course he has, but now you cannot bring yourselves to save even his bare corpse for his wife to look upon, and his mother and child and Priam and his people who would burn him in fire and perform his funeral rites? No! It's the dread Achilles that you prefer. His twisted mind is set on what he wants, as savage as a lion bristling with pride, attacking men's flocks to make himself a feast. Achilles has lost all pity and has no shame left. Shame sometimes hurts men, but it helps them too. A man may lose someone dearer than Achilles has, a brother from the same womb or a son, but when he has wept and mourned, he lets go. The fates have given men an enduring heart, but this man... After he kills Hector, he ties him behind his chariot and drags him around his dear friend's tomb. Does this make him a better or nobler man? He should fear our wrath, good as he may be, for he defiles the dumb earth in his rage. And Zeus is forced to admit, yeah, Apollo's right here. Achilles has gone way too far. And yet, 
we also get Hera defending him, um, specifically saying, you know, Hector's just mortal, Achilles is half-god, and therefore he's allowed to do this, right? And it seems like this is a poser for the gods. They don't really know how to proceed here. Like Zeus stresses, you know, Achilles is going to get more honor than Hector, for sure. No one's saying that Achilles should be honored the same amount as Hector, or that Achilles should be held to the same sort of expectations. But this is a lot. Achilles has really just been giving the finger to the gods for a long time now. And we're just going to let this go? Like, Apollo is right to be indignant, right to be angry, right to be, dare I say, enraged. Hector was a good dude. And Achilles is dragging his body all over the place. Like, we get this passage where Achilles is, like, unable to sleep. So every time that he, like, wakes up, he just goes up and uh, over to his chariot and then, like, drags Hector's body around uh, Patroclus's well, like tomb three times and then goes back to bed and then wakes up a couple hours later and does the same thing like over and over and over again and this is days this is like over a week after he killed Hector like this is 12 days after the funeral games which are two days after he kills Hector two weeks two weeks he's been dragging Hector's body around and the gods are just like eh he's Achilles what are you supposed to do everyone knows Achilles is a big deal like, no wonder the Greeks are mad at the gods as often as they are. No wonder Menelaus is ticked. Like, they suck. They're absolutely giving preferential treatment even to the ones who are flipping them off, who are just defiling the earth with their stupid, crappy vengeance hang-ups. Like, why do they let this happen? Why do the gods allow this crap? Do they care? Like, even a little bit? I mean, we've seen favoritism from the gods over and over again, and that favoritism is often connected to, oh yeah, they make a good sacrifice. Oh yeah, they've always honored the gods. Oh yeah, you know, Hector always per performed the sacrifices the correct way. But here's Achilles, who doesn't give a shit, who is just routinely sticking his middle finger up at the gods, at good decorum, and all of this, and the gods are like, eh, what are you going to do? He's Achilles. you got to love him, right? Do you? Like, is it just pure favoritism? Like Athena, you know, being nice to Odysseus. Do they just like him because he grew up there? He hung out with them. They helped raise him because Thetis brought him up to Olympus from time to time as a baby, apparently. Or is it even that rational? Is it just indifference? The gods just not caring, being totally wrapped up in their own perspectives and lives and indifferent to justice, indifferent to good taste and good sense, indifferent to who is insulting them and who is honoring them. Is that what this comes down to? So Achilles not only decides that he's going to like do all of the funeral preparations and perform all of the sacrifices in this compromised, defiled state, but then he falls asleep. Like, I don't even know what to make of this. 
Um, he falls asleep waiting for the feast, or rather he has the feast, and they're all sitting around, like, in food comas, and Achilles just passes out. And Patroclus shows up. Like, the ghost of Patroclus says, You're asleep and have forgotten me, Achilles. You never neglected me when I was alive, but now when I am dead, bury me quickly so I may pass through Hades' gates. Like, we're going to see this pretty frequently. Dead people are usually really concerned about getting properly buried and moved on real quick so they can pass on to the next life. You know, if Hector were around, he'd probably be equally grumpy, but, you know, for some reason Hector doesn't want to visit Achilles. Can't imagine why. Um, we'll see the same thing in the Odyssey a little later when one of the bodies goes unburied for a bit too long. So Patroclus is mad at Achilles. Like, as much as Achilles is stressed, oh, I'm so mad because... Hector killed Patroclus, and I love Patroclus so much, and, you know, I care so much about Patroclus. And then it's like, and now it's time to bury Patroclus, and Achilles is like... <laughs> like, what is his deal? What is going on here? Does Achilles actually care about anything at all? Because what he says he cares about doesn't seem to be something that he cares about at all. If anything, the representation here is not of some hero in the sense that we talk about heroes. People of upstanding virtue, great moral integrity. But rather something more akin to one of the Greek gods. This irascible, monstrous, incredibly powerful being who just does what he wants and nobody can do anything about it. Like, notice that accusation that Apollo makes. He's lost all shame. We talked about this, pride and shame, and how having shame before your comrades is important because it helps you to fight better and it helps you to fight for the right reasons. Hector felt shame. Terrible shame. He was so ashamed before Polydamus that he refused to save his own life and instead fought Achilles and died for it. And generally, this is considered maybe a little too much, but at least on the right track. But here's Achilles dragging Hector's body around the city of Troy in front of his own grieving parents and does not give a crap because he feels no shame before the gods, before humans, before Patroclus, before anyone. No, much as Achilles we might perceive as, you know, he absolutely did was willing to do everything for Patroclus, really, no. Achilles just does whatever he wants to do and doesn't care about anything, and this is pretty good evidence that that is the case. People can appeal to him the way that they appeal to a god. They make sacrifices, they flatter, or they cajole, or they manipulate in a very number of ways. But they don't appeal to reason because Achilles doesn't seem to care about reason. Achilles, they can't appeal to Achilles' fear because Achilles has no fear. Does that make him heroic? Or does that just make him terrified? Like I talked about last time, maybe Agamemnon was right. Maybe this guy really isn't someone to be humored. Because... The minute you take away anything from him, he apparently just throws a fit and sulks in his tent for however long it takes, and meanwhile curses the Greeks to die while they wait. Is this the behavior of someone you would respect? Anyway, Achilles does perform the sacrifices. We do, in fact, see him, like, 
you know, perform all the proper funeral arrangements. He, as promised, sac sacrifices 12 Trojan boys to Patroclus for some weird reason, um, as well as all sorts of other things, like he gives a lock of his hair to be buried with him, and I don't know. I don't know that much about Greek funeral rites. From what I understand, this is unusual. Like, from all of the archaeological evidence, the Greeks didn't even practice all that much cremation as they go, but we'll talk about that in its own time. Um, at any rate, it seems that a lot of, full of effort is put into all of the proceedings here, and that is at least good. Like, it shows that Achilles is willing to honor his friend as much as he apparently wants to when he's awake and not, you know, totally indifferent. Um, and then we get... Games. Games in Patroclus's honor. This is apparently also fairly typical. We'll see this in Homer several times, honestly, or at least see references to it throughout the myth mythological tradition quite a bit. Um, I don't want to dwell on the games too much, because they are really cut and dry, like, you know, hooray, it's the big wrestling competition, Ajax versus Odysseus, but both of them seem to be fairly evenly matched. Ajax is clearly stronger, but Odysseus is wilier, so we call it a draw. Like, not a whole heck of a lot to be said about it. A lot of time is spent on the chariot sequence, like practically a dozen pages, and it's clearly the most complicated of the bunch um, because, you know, not only do we have, like, the prizes are set out, and then we get this whole speech from Nestor to Antilochus, like, hey, this is how you do a chariot race properly, which I can't tell whether this is, like, Homer's guide to proper chariot racing, or just, you know, we, here we are characterizing Nestor as a boring, pedantic old man again. Um, we see Antilochus fairly competitive during the race, but then, like, once the race ends and Diomedes is coming first and Telekis comes in second, then there's, like, the bickering session, which goes on for, like, another four pages. Like, first off, Ajax is bickering about, like, who is, in fact, in the lead, and they start to place bets on it. And then later, after everything is done, like, Achilles is like... Well, you know, Antilochus did come in second, but, you know, Eumelus really is the better rider, so we're going to give him second place. And Antilochus is like, dude, you're going to give my prize away? And you, and Achilles is like, eh, I guess we won't do that, but we'll give something, him something else. Like, I don't even know what's going on there. And then finally, Menelaus, who came in third, is like, Antilochus, you blocked me! That was totally cheap and unfair! And Antilochus is like, oh, what can I say? I'm young and foolish. And everyone seems to be okay with this. Like... There's just as much bickering as there is race here. So I really don't know what the point of all of this is. Like, feel free to contribute your own, you know, interpretations of this passage in the greater context, but this is the sort of thing that I mean when I say that we have questions for Homer and not all of them necessarily have answers, hence all of the scholastic bickering for 3,000 years. We recognize that Homer clearly thinks this is important, but we definitely haven't figured out why at this point. Now, Ajax and Odysseus, that one we know. Notice that Ajax and Odysseus have a number of spats here, and if there was a subtitle for this chapter, like if you had a chapter title for each of the titles chapters in the Iliad, I would definitely venture Ajax gets screwed as the chapter title for Book 23. Because notice, first we get Ajax versus Odysseus in the wrestling ring, Ajax is clearly the stronger fighter, clearly able to, like, lift up Odysseus and pin him in a way that Odysseus is just not able to do that with Ajax, and yet Odysseus, like, hits him in the back of the leg, which 
sounds very foul to me. Like, where is the ref on that one? But apparently Achilles is like, eh, guess it's a draw, and Ajax is robbed of his victory. So, sucks to be Ajax. Um, then we get the sprint. And again, like, Ajax is competing against Odysseus. They seem to be the clearly fastest runners here. But Athena steps in and, like, causes Ajax to slip on apparently some horse shit that is just lying around. And Ajax is once again robbed of victory and even identifies that it was Athena who did it. And he's like, darn it, Odysseus, why does Athena love you so much? So we get a straight-up Odysseus beats Ajax in a competition here through illegitimate god-informed means. And then just to round out the let's all dump on Ajax today, Diomedes then takes Ajax in a technical win. Like, there's this big sword fight, and they're both like, all right, whoever draws both blood first wins. Diomedes keeps going for Ajax's throat, and Achilles calls it on account of nobody wants to see Ajax die. So Diomedes gets the technical victory because he was the one who seemed to be more aggressive. So that sucks for poor Ajax. And then we get to the discus throw, and somehow Polypoetes manages to beat Ajax here. And then even Tuker, you know, the guy who was teaming up with Ajax, like, I was totally, like, gung-ho for Tuker. I'm like, oh, we're going to do an archery fight? I hope Tuker wins. And then Tuker apparently forgets to set, to make the appropriate, like, prayer to Apollo and just cuts the string, and then Mariones, like, in what is probably a really impressive feat of archery, grabs the bow and fires an arrow and manages to hit the dove on the wing. I'll give credit to Mariones, but, like, Team Ajax and Tuker once again loses. Ajax has been systematically screwed, like, half a dozen times in these competitions. But this is a reference. See, after Achilles dies... Achilles' super awesome armor, including the really cool shield that we talked about at length last time, is up for grabs. Um, and Achilles, you know, doesn't leave an obvious person to receive it, so the Greeks collect the armor and decide to hold games in honor of Achilles and competing for the swag. And in those games, Ajax and Odysseus are the primary competitors for the really awesome armor. Odysseus manages to win through typically Odyssean dirty tricks and shenanigans and dumb luck. And Ajax is apparently so upset about this that he loses his mind, starts killing people left and right. The gods manage to convince him to go into a pasture instead where he starts, like, killing sheep. And the Greeks are forced to basically put Ajax down. Like, that was in the section you read from Apollodorus. Don't know if you remember it. Probably go revisit that. Because it's really messed up, and it's going to be significant in later discussions. So all of this, Ajax gets routinely screwed by the Greeks, is intentional. Just as Homer was sort of drawing attention to Aeneas in the last lecture, Homer is very much drawing attention to Ajax and his routine second fiddleness here in Book 23. Even the chariot races screw Ajax over. Like, that's probably intentional on Homer's part. Um, but enough about Iliad 23, weird as it is. Let's talk about Priam, and let's talk about Iliad 24. And I should start by saying 
I don't usually teach the first half of this book. Again, this is a portion that like we skip over in my mythology class. And it's been a while since I've read the whole of the Iliad. I was shocked at Priam's change of character here. Um, Priam is an asshole now that Hector is dead. And you can understand why. Like, he definitely cared about his son, sure. But notice, he gets really upset with his other sons and the other Trojans. Um, like, we get some really short-tempered like language from Priam. And remember, this is the same Priam who was careful and wise and affectionate, who, you know, was patient with Helen when Helen came out to sit with him as they were watching Menelaus and Paris fight. This same Priam who has always been considerate and thoughtful, the Priam who, like, didn't question Paris when Paris was like, no, I don't want to give up Helen. Priam says, you know, like, he hears from the gods that he's supposed to get some ransom money together and go visit Achilles, and he starts getting really short with the people who get in his way. Um, line 255. Get out, you sorry excuses for Trojans. Don't you have enough grief at home that you have to come here and plague me? Isn't it enough that Zeus has given me the pain and sorrow of losing my finest son? A little while later, he summons his other sons with him, Hellenus, Paris, Agathon, Pammon, so on and so forth. And in line 269, he says, Come here, you miserable brats! I wish all of you had been killed by the ships instead of Hector. I have no luck at all. I have fathered the best sons in all wide Troy, and not one, not one, I say, is left. Not Mester, godlike Mester, not Troilus, the charioteer, not Hector, who is like a god among men, like the son of a god, not of a mortal. This broke Priam. Like, we knew that Priam was upset. Like, we saw him, you know, tearing his hair out and weeping openly and, like, driven to distraction by his son's death. And then Achilles, like, flaunting the death by pulling the body all over the place. But Priam, I expected more from him. Priam's full-on snapped here. Like, calling all of his remaining sons together and telling them, I wish all of you were dead... All of my good sons are gone, and this is what I'm left with? This is not the same Priam who stood up for Paris way earlier on in this text. He's gone. Like, totally lost. Which is even stranger given the fact that he manages to appeal so sympathetically to Achilles when it in fact comes to that. Like, Priam gets his swag together, he goes out as per the gods' request with his cart full of swag, Hermes guides him safely into the, the Greek camp, and we get this discussion between Priam and Achilles that is really sympathetic. Priam appeals to Achilles. Remember your father, godlike Achilles, he says in line 520. He and I are both on the doorstep of old age. He may well be now surrounded by enemies wearing him down and have no one to protect him from harm. But then he hears that you are still alive and his heart rejoices and he hopes all his days to see his dear son come back from Troy. Like, Priam, who hated his sons, not pages before, now appeals to Achilles on the grounds of his own father, is suddenly able to sympathize. Now, on the one hand, this is indicative of where Priam's head is at. Like, Priam encourages Achilles to see this situation from his, Priam's, perspective by appealing to what Peleus, Achilles' own father, must be thinking about the loss of his son. Which, 
is really sneaky from the poet's perspective, because notice that this manages to do both the work of, hey, here's Priam, wily old king, you know, appealing to Achilles, here is his insight, here is Achilles changing his mind, but also gives us the insight that Homer is anticipating the death of Achilles and the news that is going to come to, to Peleus in some later, you know, epic or later part of the cycle here. So, like, double points to Homer for managing to wrangle all this together. Um, notice that this works. He spoke in sorrow for his own father welled up in Achilles. He took Priam's hand and gently pushed the old man away. The two of them remembered. Priam, huddled in grief at Achilles' feet, cried and moaned softly for his man-slaying Hector, and Achilles cried, Achilles cried for his father and for Patroclus. The sound filled the room. I suspect, as weird as this is to say, that Priam and Achilles fix each other here. Priam, driven to madness by the death of Hector, only finds peace when he unloads his feelings, manages to communicate his situation to the guy who killed his son. And Achilles is only finally able to sort of see past his own selfish rage, see past his grief and actually get some decent sleep when he is approached by the father of his beloved's killer, by the guy who brought Hector into this world appealing to Achilles for the hand of Hector. Like, in any other situation, this would be open and shut. Achilles would frigging kill Priam on the spot, remember? He said to Lycaon, I am leaving no Trojans alive, not since Patroclus is dead. And yet here he is, the leader of the Trojans, comes into his own tent and Achilles cries with him, recognizes that they have both lost terribly by this war. Priam has lost Hector and all of his great sons. Achilles has lost Patroclus and will be lost himself. They've all had this war take so much away from them. And in that moment, they're more alike than unlike. Yeah, Hector killed Patroclus. But these are both just people grieving. They're both just suffering in the wake of these losses. So Achilles gives him the bot. The gods have been preserving Hector supernaturally, apparently for all of these two weeks, and finally the body in pristine condition is returned to the Trojans. And the last scene of this book is the burial, the funeral. And we get some important speeches there as well. But notice they are especially those of the women. So we get Hecuba's speech. We get Andromache's speech. We get Helen's speech, weirdly enough. Um, and notice what Helen has to say here, because again, we haven't seen Helen since, like, book six? It's been 18 books since Helen showed up? But notice, O oh Hector, you were the dearest to me by far of all my husband's brothers. Yes, Paris is my husband, the godlike prince who led me to Troy. I should have died first. This is now the 20th year since I went away and left my home, and I have never had an unkind word from you. If anyone in the house ever taunted me, any of my husband's brothers or sisters or his mother, my father-in-law was kind always. You would draw them aside and calm them with your gentle heart and gentle words, and so I weep for you and for myself, and my heart is heavy. 
because there is no one left in all wide Troy who will pity me or be my friend. Everyone shudders at me. Like, notice that each of these women grieves for different reasons. You know, Andromache grieves because her husband, her infant son is an orphan because she is abandoned by him. Hecuba mourns because of his son, because of the fact that Achilles in his rage was not willing to return him. But notice that even Helen grieves because Hector was Helen's only friend. And in some ways I feel like that's the most horrible blow of all. You know, we knew Andromache would grieve, but she's been grieving for a while now. We knew that Hecuba would grieve, and in fact, we've seen her grieve as well. But here, Helen comes out of the blue and just hits us in the gut. My heart is heavy because there is no one left in all wide Troy who will pity me or be my friend. She's the cause of all this suffering. She knows that she's the cause of all this suffering, but only Priam and Hector have ever been decent enough, have ever been kind enough to tell her it's not your fault. And it isn't. Not anymore. Remember? Hector stood there and said, maybe I'll just, you know, like, tell tell Achilles that it's all off, that we'll return to Helen. And then he realizes, no, Achilles doesn't give a crap about Helen. He's here for my blood because I killed Patroclus. That's what this war is about right now. Last we get Priam. And Priam is all business. Start bringing wood to the city. Have no fear of an Argive ambush. He worked out a truce. So they stack up the, the wood. They set the body of Hector on fire. And they let this all end. The last passage in this book, the last line, is that was the funeral of Hector, breaker of horses. And I said before, and I'll say it again, I think Hector is sort of the center of this poem. He is the greatest hero of this poem in a lot of ways. Like, yeah, we've talked a lot about the fact that he probably couldn't keep up with virtually any of the other Greek heroes at all. But nonetheless, he's the one who this book ends with. He's the one who manages to die most tragically and to be the most honorable during his life, for that matter. This is Hector's story, because it's Troy's story. And just as we talk about how the death of Hector means the end of Troy, that this is all, you know, Homeric anticipation of the, the stories that aren't told here, you know, this is as much a funeral for Hector as it is a funeral for Troy, a recognition that this is it. Hector is dead. Achilles killed him. And now it's just a matter of time. They grieve because they are all doomed. Nothing less. So if there is a message to this Iliad, a sort of coda for Homer on the subject of war, it's this, that it, it just takes that we grieve, that all of us have lost these things, that everyone has suffered Achilles and Priam have both lost terribly. And now Troy is doomed. Doomed because of the rage of Achilles. Because of this passion that overtook them. That defied their better senses. That 
has turned what was a good idea, avenging Patroclus, into cruelty, into just senseless brutality. That's what war does. You know, Achilles and many of the characters in this book have said, I wish that strife would leave us alone, that these wars could just go away. You know, Sarpedon de Glaucus said that I wish that we could just be alone at the end of the world, or Achilles to Patroclus. I wish we could just be on this battlefield and tear Troy down ourselves. I wish that the killing would stop, in short. Because at the end of the day, nobody won in this book. Like, Achilles isn't the triumphant hero here. He doesn't lord it over Priam when Priam comes to his lair. Like, he's not saying, you know, Priam, I'm glad you brought all that swag because I'm going to need a lot of it if you want Hector back. Like, bring me half the wealth of Troy. Like, no, they just, they just weep together. It's a really downbeat ending, honestly. It's very much just driving home the horrific tragedy of this war. How many lives were destroyed and lost how many families were disrupted and totally just wrecked by all of this senselessness, this violence that is meaningless, this undignified, unglorifying kind of war before a bunch of gods who apparently just do not care about the consequences of their actions, about the lives of mortals. This is somehow all the plan of Zeus. And yet, what does Zeus care about Hector or about anyone? He sits on his butt and lets Hector's body be dragged in opposition and defilement of everything that he stands for. Because apparently he doesn't stand for those things. He doesn't care. The heavens, the gods, they're indifferent, callous, careless. And that's why all these people suffer and die. There is goodness, though, like what Hector was trying to do, like what Hector tried to stand for. There is honor in defending your home from this tide of awfulness. And so he's the one we celebrate. He's the one who gets to be celebrated unqualifiably at the end. You know, Priam doesn't fall asleep the way that Achilles does. He doesn't get necessarily quite the lavish burial that Patroclus did, but at the same time, it is heartfelt. It is earnest. He will be missed in a way that Achilles really might not. In a way that Patroclus, for all of Achilles' assurances, kind of seems to be overcompensating. Achilles cared for Patroclus deeply, but Achilles is doomed. Patroclus' legacy is in serious question. Admittedly, Hector's is as well, insofar as all of his family and his entire city are about to be destroyed. But think of the difference there. Think of what Hector meant to all those people, to the whole city of Troy. They cared about him as their protector, yes, but also just cared about him, period. Hector's death is a tragedy. And it just reeks in this novel, or in this epic. All of these people hurt, pained. His wife, his mother, his friend, 
his fellow soldiers, his father, his city, the son, the people that he protected. Because that's what heroism really is. Because they were helped by him. He served and gained honor through his service. Where Achilles just does what he wants. And his rage destroys everyone who comes close to him. At any rate, that's the Iliad. There's a lot more that we haven't discussed that I encourage you to find in the text and to write about in papers and wherever. Um, we'll discuss some of that stuff in the future as we sort of look at other readings and look at other people writing about this. Um, but for now, we are leaving it behind. For next week, we are jumping into the Odyssey. and We've got two lectures to sort of take us through the first half of the book. Um, keep in mind, the Odyssey is a very different beast, very different priorities, very different attitudes, very different values, very different approaches. Uh, we're not going to have nearly the sort of time or a comprehensive reading that we had with the Iliad here. We're just going to be very much jumping around to the stuff that I find especially relevant, especially in the context of the Iliad. Uh, but we will hit a lot of the main points. Two weeks we'll spend in the Odyssey, and then we're off Homer, or at least off the stuff that Homer himself wrote for quite a while. At any rate, I look forward to talking to you about the Odyssey and about the greater world of Homeric literature in the coming lectures.